This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 120th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, November 23rd. It is Thanksgiving, and I am definitely not thankful for our FCC, who decided to ruin the holiday by announcing their rollback of Title II net neutrality regulations. So if you hadn't already guessed, that is what this episode will be about. But of course, as usual, before we get into the issues, I want to take a moment to thank all of our latest Patreon and PayPal contributors. This week, we have Alana White, Brian Danzer, Kathy Cowan-Becker, Charles D. Fernandez, Cole Shores, Dave Foreman, David Tadros of 4H Games, Aaron S. Rapson, Ricardo Palomares, Rose Gomez, Scott Luke, Tejo Arponen, Vegard and William Kirk. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you would also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's net neutrality centric episode, we're going to talk about the FCC's newly announced plan to officially kill net neutrality. We'll talk about the lesser known ways that the FCC is actually making the internet worse and less accessible to poor people. We'll talk about public support for net neutrality and how the FCC is opening the door to media monopolies. We'll also talk about the corruption that is fueling the Republican Party's push for tax reform and what Bernie Sanders specifically had to say about that. We'll talk about the DNC's continued fundraising months and how really they're not able to raise much money. Apparently that progressive purge isn't working out too well for them. We'll talk about the Keystone XL Pipeline's newest spill. And finally in this episode, we'll talk about multi-millionaire Stephen Klubeck, who attacked Bernie Sanders for saying something that was rational. All of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. It probably won't be the most enjoyable podcast, so I, I'll refrain from saying enjoy the show. But I think that the attack on the internet, which is really the last beacon of hope for our democracy is an issue that is too important to not make the main focus of this episode, so let's just jump right into it. So, it seems as though net neutrality will almost certainly be repealed. We had an announcement from the FCC which stated their intent to fully repeal Title II net neutrality regulations. And this will most likely be voted on on December 14th, conspicuously during the holiday season, when you'll be spending time with your family. And notice how they announced this decision a couple of days before Thanksgiving, when you are most likely not going to be paying attention. So they know that this is unpopular, and they're going to do it anyway, because Ajit Pai, the chair of the FCC, he came from the industry. His former employer is Verizon, and when he leaves the FCC, he'll most likely be getting a huge sign-on bonus when they inevitably rehire him back for doing something 
that will net them billions of dollars in profit. Now, according to Cecilia Kang of the New York Times, she reports the Federal Communications Commission announced on Tuesday that it planned to dismantle landmark regulations that ensure equal access to the internet, clearing the way for companies to charge more and block access to some websites. The proposal, put forward by the FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, is a sweeping repeal of rules put in place by the Obama administration. The rules prohibit high-speed internet service providers from blocking or slowing down the delivery of websites or charging extra fees for the best quality of streaming and other internet services for their subscribers. Those limits are central to the concept of net neutrality. Under my proposal, the federal government will stop micromanaging the internet, Mr. Pai said in a statement. Instead, the FCC would simply require internet service providers to be transparent about their practices so that consumers can buy the service plan that's best for them and entrepreneurs and other small businesses can have the technical information they need to innovate. The proposal for Mr. Pai, a Republican, is widely expected to be approved during a December 14th meeting in a three-to-two party-line vote from the agency's five commissioners, but some companies will probably put up a legal fight or actions by lawmakers to prevent it from taking hold. Mr. Pai signaled his intention to dismantle the existing rules in April. The action on Tuesday by Mr. Pai, who was appointed chairman by President Trump, is the centerpiece of a deregulatory agenda that has also stripped television broadcasters, newspapers, and telecom companies of a broad range of regulations meant to protect the public interest. The telecom companies on Tuesday cheered Mr. Pai's proposal. So when this vote happens, this will mean that we're going to see a completely different internet. The internet will cease to exist as we know it. And once you take something away, it will be nearly impossible to ever get it back. So I want to show you what's at stake. So this is an example of an internet package that's currently sold in the United States. Now, as you can see, there are three different pricing tiers, but those tiers are based on speed. So the more money you spend, the faster your internet speeds will be. Now, currently, net neutrality mandates that this internet service provider cannot treat services differently or websites differently, meaning if you buy the 40 megabits per second package, then they can't discriminate against certain websites and slow down the speed to 10 megabits per second. All web traffic must be treated the same. That's the principle of net neutrality. Now, this is what TV packages look like in the United States. I took this example from DirecTV. So they currently have multiple tiers of pricing, but unlike with the internet, these packages are based on how many channels you actually get with said package. So the more channels you want, the more money your package will cost in the end. And if there's a really popular channel, like HBO or Showtime, for example, then they might actually exclude that from all the packages and make you pay for that individually. Now, when the FCC votes to repeal net neutrality, what's going to happen is this allows internet service providers to set up internet packages that are akin to TV packages that we see in the United States currently. So instead of just paying for an internet package based on speed, you'll now have to pay for website packages instead of just getting access to all of the internet as you do right now. And in countries like Portugal, that's exactly 
what internet service providers have done because there are no net neutrality protections there. So if you want to access YouTube and Netflix, then you've got to pay for the media package. If you want to access email or messaging, then you've got to have those individual packages that you pay for separately. And if you want to access the entirety of the internet, then you'll have to pay more, presumably, than you're paying right now because they're going to promote these as cheaper packages saying, well, the internet is cheap now, but what they're not telling you is that you're not getting access to all of the internet. They're sexually off portions of the internet. And in Mexico, we see the same exact thing. In countries without net neutrality, it always leads to the same tiered internet structure where you have to purchase certain packages in order to access Snapchat and Instagram, for example, as you see here. So you are buying access to websites like you would buy access to certain television channels. So that's what's at stake. They're changing the face of the internet forever. And they're going to rip you off more than they already do now. And if you call and threaten to cancel, well, unfortunately for a lot of us, we only have access to one or two internet service providers. So you don't really have the option to cancel and take your money elsewhere because there's monopolies everywhere. So if you don't like what Comcast is doing, tough. It's either Comcast or no internet at all. That's what we're being left with. That's that's the option. It's this illusion of choice because Ajit Pai claims, oh, the market's going to sort it out. You know, if, if these internet service providers like Verizon, my former employer, and Comcast, they, you know, um, practice these shady business tactics, then, you know, they'll just go out of business. Actually, they won't go out of business, Ajit, and that's because they have monopolies. Now, when I tell you about the way that they'll be selling internet to people and ripping people off, that's just the tip of the iceberg because since no net neutrality would actually empower internet service providers to discriminate against websites and throttle bandwidth you know to websites that they don't like they could now actually censor content that they don't like so any website that speaks out against the shady practices of comcast for example they could easily be throttled so people couldn't access their website they could demand that that website pay a fee to continue operating. So if the humanist report speaks out against Comcast, then Comcast could say, well, you better pay us $10,000 or a million dollars, whatever the price you know uh, they impose, if you want people to gain access to your website. And there'd be nothing that we could do. Now, if a competitor like Netflix threatens the business model of Comcast, they could throttle that streaming service in order to influence people to buy their television packages or their own streaming service. That's what Comcast actually did in 2014. And that is what actually prompted the reclassification of the internet as a utility under Title II of the Communications Act in the first place. So we are looking at the worst case scenario. All of what I'm talking about probably won't come to fruition immediately. There's going to be a long legal battle ahead, but make no mistake about it. This is what this vote will do. I know that we are all trying to celebrate the holidays and spend time with our families, but we've got to take action. So here's what you can do to make a difference. First of all, you can go to verizonprotest.com to find a protest outside of a Verizon store near you. Since Verizon is one of the main companies lobbying to kill net neutrality, you could send a huge message to them if you protest outside of their stores. Also, you can tweet to Ajit Pai at Ajit Pai FCC. You can call the FCC at one 225 5322 and follow prompts 1420. You can also email Ajit Pai at ajit.pai at fcc.gov and I would encourage you to do all of these things. Tweet at him. I'm going to be tweeting at Ajit Pai constantly over the course of the week because this is unacceptable. This can't stand. Again, if we lose net neutrality, getting it back will be really, really difficult.
much more difficult than fighting to keep what we already have. So this is a fight for the internet. This is a fight for democracy because the internet is important for democracy. Do you think that Bernie Sanders would have would have had the success that he did had it not been for the internet and independent media? Of course not. This is really important. So look, please do what you can. This is a grim situation. Um, I hate to I hate to be, you know, like Chicken Little and claim that the sky is falling, but the sky is falling, folks. This is serious. Net neutrality is probably going to be repealed and the internet is in serious danger. Take action. Anytime a government agency proposes sweeping regulatory changes, they are supposed to wait before implementing these changes. So they make an announcement and they allow the public to comment on these proposed changes. Now, that is what the FCC was required to do when they announced that they would be voting to roll back Title II net neutrality regulations. Now, the comment period lasted about three to four months overall, and there was a total of more than 22 million comments submitted to the FCC. This is record-breaking. Now, one problem with this process is that a lot of of us saw that it was compromised because there were a lot of fake fraudulent comments being submitted using people's identities to say that they support Ajit Pai's corporate agenda and each of these comments used the same exact industry talking points and the biggest problem with this is that the chairman of the FCC Ajit Pai was turning a blind eye to this when we were calling on him to investigate it and this is presumably because he wanted all of these fake comments to make it seem as though he's doing the bidding of the American people. When really, these comments are fake, and even though they purport to support his pro-corporate agenda, most people, the authentic comments, do not support Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda. And now, we have evidence that this is in fact the case, because a study that was released in August shows that 98.5% of those comments submitted to the FCC... They all supported net neutrality overwhelmingly. So according to John Brocken of Ars Technica, he explains that a study funded by internet service providers has found something that internet service providers really won't like. The overwhelming majority of people who wrote unique comments to the Federal Communications Commission want the FCC to keep its current net neutrality rules and classification of ISPs as common carriers under Title II of the Communications Act, according to the study released today. The study was conducted by consultants firm Emprada and funded by Broadband for America, whose members include AT&T, CenturyLink, Charter, CTIA, the Wireless Association, Comcast, NCTA, the Internet and Television Association, the Telecommunications Industry Association, and U.S. Telecom. When Emprada analyzed all 21.8 million comments at the time, including spam and form letters, 60% were against FCC Chairman Ajit Pai's plan to repeal Title II classification, and 39% supported the repeal plan. But the number shifted starkly in favor of keeping the Title II rules when excluding duplicates in order to analyze just unique comments written by individuals. Emprada wrote, There are considerably more personalized comments appearing only once in the docket against repeal 1.52 million versus 23,004 repeal presumably these comments originated from individuals that took the time to type a personalized comment although these comments represent less than 10% of the total this is a notable difference that amounts to 98.5% of personalized comments supporting the current rules 
Form letters constitute the majority of comments on both sides. This was especially pronounced in the case of anti-Title II comments. The overwhelming majority of comments for and against repealing Title II are form letters, pre-generated portions of text that appear multiple times in the docket. The form letters likely originated from numerous sources organized by groups that were for or against the repeal of Title II. Form letters compromise upwards of 89.8% of comments against Title II and upwards of 99.6% of the comments for Title II repeal. So 98.5% support net neutrality and they don't want Ajit Pai and the FCC to repeal Title II protections. But the FCC is poised to do that anyway. The FCC has gone rogue. They're not listening to the American people. The whole point of having a public comment period is to make sure that unelected bureaucrats don't do things that undermine the will of the people. But here they are with more than 20 million comments telling them, leave the internet alone. And they're going to do what we don't want them to do. They're doing the exact opposite and they're not listening to us. Now, this is just based on comments that were submitted to the FCC. But when you actually poll the broader public, normal people overwhelmingly approve of net neutrality and they don't support Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda. One poll by the Morning Consult and NCTA found, quote, 61% either strongly or somewhat support net neutrality rules, while 18% either strongly or somewhat oppose them. Another 21% either did not know or had no opinion. And those people who had no opinion probably don't know what net neutrality means, because not only is the topic of net neutrality, a pretty complex and convoluted subject, but there's been so much propaganda and disinformation that these internet service providers who have been lobbying to kill net neutrality has been trying to spread. I mean, go to Comcast and their YouTube channel, go to the Verizon YouTube channel, and you see videos where they are just brazenly lying about net neutrality. So, of course, that number would be a lot higher if people actually had the facts. But I mean, still, 61%, that's the overwhelming majority of the public. But this poll isn't the only poll that shows that most Americans support net neutrality because Mozilla actually conducted a poll with Ipsos with approximately 1,000 Americans and found widespread support for net neutrality across party lines. So 76% of Americans in total support net neutrality. And when you control for party affiliation, 81% of Democrats support it and 73% of Republicans support it. So this is a bipartisan issue. Net neutrality is supported by everyone and anyone who's opposed to net neutrality, they probably just don't fully understand it. We all know that our own president doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to net neutrality because he tweeted out in 2014 that net neutrality allows the FCC and the government to discriminate against conservative websites. But in making this ignorant statement, clearly he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about because, I mean, <laughs> this allows internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon to discriminate against any website, including conservative websites like Breitbart. So, all these websites that are conservative and right-leaning who are doing propaganda at the behest of Ajit Pai and FCC, first of all, you can just look at the comments and see that their conservative viewers don't agree with them. And second of all, I hope that they're the first who are throttled and affected by this because in towing the party line and go al going along with everything that the Republican Party does, you're going to make yourself look really foolish when you see how this fucks over your own business and your own website. So in repealing that neutrality, Ajit Pai and the FCC, they are brazenly undermining the will of the people. This is unacceptable. When you have 98.5% of Americans 
on board with anything? That's an anomaly. It's almost miraculous, right? <laughs> that, that never happens. They don't want net neutrality to be killed. They like that it's classified as a utility under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. So why is it that unelected bureaucrats get to undermine the will of the people? A majority of Americans support net neutrality and almost all of the comments submitted support net neutrality to the FCC. So how can they, after supposedly accepting feedback from the public, go against the public? It's because the FCC has gone rogue and Ajit Pai has a corporate agenda. I'm going to say this again, and I sound like a broken record, but I think this is an important point to make. Ajit Pai served as an attorney. He was legal counsel to Verizon before he served on the FCC. So with this revolving door in Washington, D.C. and the way it works, you can guarantee that after he successfully kills off net neutrality, Verizon will hire him back and they'll welcome him with open arms and probably a really big hiring bonus. And he is just counting the money ahead of time in his head he's gonna he's gonna go on vacations he's gonna buy mansions you know he he knows that even though he's ruining the internet for everyone and as a result actually harming democracy since the internet is so crucial to democracy he doesn't care this is about fulfilling the corporate agenda that none of his predecessors were actually able to do you know none of them were able to come through and the last fcc chairman was a comcast stooge and when he tried to kill net neutrality, the internet rose up and defeated him. But Ajit Pai is probably going to pull off what nobody else was able to pull off before. And he's doing this without the approval of the American people. The internet is in more danger than it's ever been in. This, this issue is very serious, so please... Do what you can to do your part and spread awareness about net neutrality because this is an issue that will ruin the internet permanently. This could affect generations. So unless you're living under a rock, then you know by now that the FCC, under the leadership of Chairman Ajit Pai, is going to ruin the internet by repealing Title II net neutrality regulations. But net neutrality itself... That's just the tip of the iceberg, because what Ajit Pai and the FCC are also trying to do is destroy the internet in other ways. So not only are they making the internet less accessible to poor people, but they're also deregulating the industry in a way that will actually make the internet just shittier in general. So according to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, he reports that as carriers like AT&T and Verizon turn off copper networks throughout much of the country, many people fear that the networks won't be replaced with fiber or something of similar quality. That's why the FCC in 2014 created a functional test for carriers that seek permission to abandon copper networks. In short, Carriers have to prove that the replacement service is just as good and provides the same capabilities as what's being discontinued. Pi's proposal, titled Accelerating Wireline Broadband Deployment, would eliminate the functional test, claiming that it deterred and delayed carriers from upgrading their networks. But without the functional test, carriers could declare that an area is served with technology that's good enough as long as mobile service is available, consumer advocates say. 
Carriers wouldn't have to provide fiber and they wouldn't even have to provide fixed wireless services which beams signals to antennas on people's houses and provides a more stable connection than mobile service. Especially in rural areas where carriers don't make as much money, they might just decide not to provide either a wireline or fixed wireless connection to replace the copper. That could leave residents scrambling to find a better replacement for copper-based service. DSL internet access over copper lines is unfortunately the best available service in some parts of the country. Pi's proposal could also make it easier for carriers to let copper networks decay without making repairs or upgrades. So in short, if carriers want to replace old copper lines or if those copper lines decay over time, they no longer have to prove that they're going to replace it with something at least as good as what they are replacing in the first place. So in other words, what this opens the door to is quicker, cheaper, potentially shittier fixes that ultimately facilitates worse access to the internet overall. But that's not all, because Ajit Pai is not just opening the door to shittier internet, he's also opening the door to more expensive shittier internet. So Tony Rom of Recode reports, Pi successfully removed restrictions on the likes of AT&T and Verizon, which now have more leeway to raise prices for businesses that rely on dedicated links to their networks. That includes hospitals and schools, for example, which tap this so-called business data services market, a different pipe than, say, your usual home internet, to transmit large quantities of data quickly and reliably. Price regulation, that is, the government setting the rates, terms and conditions for special access to services, is seductive, Pi said. Who can possibly resist the promise of forcing prices lower right now? But in reality, price regulation threatens competition and investment. See, and he keeps repeating this. He keeps saying that he has to deregulate the internet and make the internet shittier for everyone else because all these regulations that protect the internet from these greedy internet service providers uh, like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, well, you know, that just stifles competition and investment. But he hasn't cited a shred of evidence. So he keeps saying this claim and repeating it over and over and over, but he doesn't give us any data. He doesn't give us any statistics that actually prove his point. But that's not all. He's not just allowing internet service providers to raise prices. He's also removing subsidies that help poor people afford the internet. So Wired's Clint Finley explains when a GPI became chair of the Federal Communications Commission earlier this year, he pledged to make bridging the digital divide a top priority. Thursday, the commission took several steps that could worsen the divide by making it harder for poor and rural Americans to access telecom services. In particular, the agency said it is considering changes to its Lifeline program that helps low-income Americans pay for telephone and internet service and to allow telecom companies to decommission aging DSL connections in rural areas without replacing them. The proposed changes to the Lifeline program would reduce the available subsidies, make them available to fewer people, and cover fewer carriers. And make no mistake about it, the internet is crucial to democracy. So if Ajit Pai and his corporatist Republican agenda can reduce access that poor people have to the internet and restricts their ability to easily obtain information, then that helps his party win. That helps large corporations like Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, his former employer, deceive the American people. Because by reducing the availability of this subsidy, that's exactly what happens. Less poor people will be able to afford the internet. The internet is already very expensive. The United States is way behind Europe and other countries. We're actually even behind some third world countries when it comes to our access to the internet and quality of the internet and speeds. 
But he's making all of this worse. By deregulating the telecom and internet service providers, he is making it so that way they can offer us worse internet and he's making it so less people will be able to access the internet. It's it's awful. But I mean, hey, it's not all bad news because the FCC is actually taking steps to curtail robocalls. To say that Ajit Pai is a disaster, it's the understatement of the century. He's a threat to democracy. How about this, Ajit? We'll keep robocalls if it also means we get to keep net neutrality in the internet as it is and you don't deregulate the hell out of the industry. But of course, I've said it once, I'll say it again. He came from the industry. He served as legal counsel to Verizon, who's lobbying to kill net neutrality. So they're going to give him a lot of money when they inevitably hire him back. I mean, this is corruption. This is a conflict of interest. If you came from the industry, obviously, you shouldn't be regulating that industry. So look, a GPI you know, he's not just destroying net neutrality. He is ruining the internet forever. These are changes that we're not going to be able to get back most likely. I mean, once you deregulate the industry to hell, I mean, those companies are going to fight harder than ever. Comcast and Verizon, they're going to lobby more than ever to make sure that they stay deregulated. And that's a problem. So, I mean, the internet is important. It's crucial to democracy. And Ajit Pai is ruining it for everyone. So on the show, we've talked about how Ajit Pai is ruining the internet by deregulating internet service providers and the telecommunications industry, but he's also corporatizing the internet. And he's not just doing that to the internet, he's also doing it to local media stations. So what he's doing in deregulating the industry, he is paving the way so that way at the local level, we see a bunch of Fox News level propaganda outlets across the country. Now, Andy Kroll of Mother Jones explains on Thursday, the Republican-led Federal Communications Commission voted on a series of actions that would eliminate regulations for local media ownership while approving a new TV broadcast standard developed by Sinclair. Both decisions will likely result in a major windfall for the Maryland-based company, paving the way for Sinclair's proposed $3.9 billion merger with Tribune Media and for the widespread adoption of its next-gen TV service. The FCC's announcement helps pave the way for Sinclair's mega-merger with Tribune Media, a deal that would give the company well over 200 TV stations, including in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago, the country's three biggest media markets. The FCC also voted to remove the 40-year-old ban on a company owning a newspaper and a TV or radio station in the same media market as part of the FCC's deregulatory spree on Thursday. So this would be a disaster. We already know what propaganda does to this country, but if we see this replicated at the local level, if it becomes more prevalent across the country, generations will be brainwashed by Sinclair's propaganda. This is a right-wing company, and Ajit Pai is paving the way for them to basically own all the media and control all the media that we see in these uh in these states and again that includes new york los angeles and chicago but when it comes to why this matters sue wilson of common dreams explains that this is a nifty way to reduce down to just one newsroom then dictate whatever information that corporation does and does not want you to know in this democracy it's exactly what happened with radio 
Back in the day when lots of companies owned 40 radio stations, the broadcast industry made big promises that local information would be much more diverse if they could simply own many more stations. The 1996 Telecommunications Act resulted in a handful of corporations owning thousands of stations and force-feeding conservative programming down our country's throats ever since. No debate, no opposing opinions allowed. Now the FCC is quietly trying to do the same thing to our local TV stations. In 2003, when they just tried to allow TV stations to own newspapers, 3 million people rose up and said no. Now they want to allow the newspapers plus all the TV stations in one town to have the same owner, and they're not even asking for public comment. This would be devastating. It would be absolutely devastating on a grand scale. It just paves the way for right-wing propaganda at the local level because currently when you watch your local news, I mean, really, they're pretty neutral. They're pretty tepid in support for either party. You know, they usually just report local events and whatnot. But if this goes through, if this happens, I mean, you see ownership of the media by one company that can control the narrative and do propaganda on behalf of the corrupt Republican Party. I think that we need objectivity in the news, but this will reduce objectivity in the news. So when it comes to something like this happening, typically I would say, well, we're going to really have to make sure that we support independent news outlets like the Humanist Report, Secular Talk, and whatnot. But with net neutrality, we don't know what's going to happen with these types of shows. Uh, the FCC, you know, in empowering Verizon and Comcast to throttle traffic, they could throttle traffic to YouTube if YouTube doesn't shut channels like mine down. Now, look, I'm getting way ahead of myself. I don't know that that's going to happen, but the future, you know, there's so much unknown right now because of what the FCC is doing that we have to entertain these disaster scenarios in our minds so we can be prepared to fight them. But I mean, look, these these companies... They're going to be innovative and creative in the ways that they fuck us over, really. So we can't even begin to imagine what types of consequences will ultimately come to fruition as a result of the FCC's deregulation spree. But all we know is that it doesn't bode well for the American people, and certainly it's not going to bode too well for democracy overall. So I'll say it again, Ajit Pai is absolutely a threat to democracy. For one unelected official, and really it's not just him, it's the other Republicans, but I mean it's under his leadership, he's the one who is pushing for all of this. For one unelected bureaucrat to have such a tremendous impact, Congress has got to get involved. He is undermining the will of the people, brazenly so, and he doesn't even care. So this is dangerous. We are going down a really dangerous road, and we've got to make sure that we are cognizant of everything he's doing, because this is bad. Last week, the Republican Party had two major victories when it comes to their push for tax reform in the United States. So first, their legislation cleared the Senate Finance Committee in a 14 to 12 vote, and it also passed in the House along party lines with only 13 Republicans going against their own party. Now, since this was strictly a partisan vote and zero Democrats went along with the Republicans here, surprisingly, President Trump took to Twitter to denounce Democrats, saying, quote, Big win today in the House for GOP tax cuts and reform. 227 to 205, zero Dems. They want to raise taxes much higher, but not for our military. If Democrats were not such obstructionists and understood the power of lower taxes, we would be able to get many of their ideas into bill. Now, keep in mind that the president is expecting them to go along with a tax plan that's political suicide for Democrats, because what this bill does is it 
raises taxes on the middle class over time, and it lowers taxes on the richest Americans in the country. And not only that, now their proposal also includes a repeal of the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act, which could facilitate a 10% increase in monthly health insurance premiums overall. So in opposing this bill, the Democratic Party is not being obstructionist. Surprisingly, they're on the side of the American people because this is a horrendous bill. Now, when you ask Donald Trump, he implies they've extended this olive branch to Democrats and said, hey, if you want to get your input into this tax reform proposal, then you need to come and talk with us. But since you guys are just being obstructionist, then we're not going to include any of your ideas in this bill. But when you actually talk with a respectable, truthful politician who doesn't lie every two minutes, Bernie Sanders, he doesn't necessarily agree with that narrative. This is what he had to say about Donald Trump's claim that the Democratic Party was being obstructionist in an interview on CNN with Jake Tapper. Well, that's total nonsense. Democrats were completely shut out of this process, just as they were shut out of the health care uh, legislation process. Here is the fact, and Trump should understand this. What this legislation is about is fulfilling the promises, Republican promises made to wealthy campaign contributors. There is a reason why the billionaire class provides hundreds of millions of dollars in campaign contributions to Republicans. And now is payback time. What this legislation is about, Jake, is giving 50% of the tax benefits to the top 1%, and at the end of 10 years in the House bill, forcing almost 50% of the middle class to actually pay more in taxes. What this legislation is about absolutely insanely is repealing the estate tax, a $269 billion tax break, not for the top 1%, but for the top two-tenths of 1%, a handful of the wealthiest families in this country, like the Walton family and the Koch brothers family and mm -hmm. other very, very wealthy families. So, Senator and by the way, yeah. by the way, Jake, one other point. When they run up a $1.5 trillion deficit, as they will in this legislation, they're going to come back, and that's what Paul Ryan is saying, they're going to come back with massive cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, because they say, oh my goodness, the deficit and the national debt are too high. This is a terrible, terrible piece of legislation, and it must be defeated. So first of all, Bernie Sanders claims that the Democratic Party has been completely shut out of the process when it comes to tax reform. This is only the most believable claim ever, because when it came to their health care debate, as Bernie Sanders alluded to, they wouldn't even allow anyone to see the bill. They wouldn't even allow their own party to see the bill. So the Republican leadership, they hid this bill, this Obamacare repeal bill, away from most of their own party, wouldn't show it to the American people, wouldn't show it to the Democrats, and they made that same claim that Democrats don't want to work with them to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Well, first of all, even if they wanted to work with Republicans, you're not giving them an opportunity to work with you if you won't even show them the legislation, because when you are crafting bills, part of that process is allowing people to read it and propose feedback and say, look, I don't like this portion. I'd like to remove that. I want to propose an amendment here. I mean, that's that's part of the legislative process. But Republicans are preventing Democrats from doing that while in the same breath claiming that they are being obstructionist. No, simply not voting with you guys on this obscene piece of legislation, that's not being obstructionist. Again, that's just defending what the American people want. Now, Bernie Sanders made a really important point 
about the corruption that's fueling the Republican Party's push for tax reform. And I want to read his quote in entirety here. So he says, what this legislation is about is fulfilling the Republican promise made to wealthy campaign contributors. There's a reason why the billionaire class provide hundreds of millions in campaign contributions to Republicans. And now it's payback time. And Bernie Sanders is not just being hyperbolic. This is factual. This is an open secret, really, that that a lot of people, you know, they should be talking about a lot more frequently. The media should be talking about this. I mean, it's to the point now where corruption is so open in this country and so brazen in this country that the Republican Party's donors are literally publicly threatening to cut off the party from the piggy bank if they don't deliver in the form of tax breaks. So, for example, the Koch Brothers Network threatened to deny Republicans access to hundreds of millions of dollars, specifically three to four hundred million dollars, if the Republican Party doesn't actually deliver on tax reform, as well as a repeal of the Affordable Care Act, which is seemingly why the party is now all of a sudden trying to squeeze this repeal of the individual mandate into their tax reform legislation. Because, I mean, if the Koch brothers and their network actually sit out the midterm election, that would be devastating to Republicans. Now, it's not just the donors who are admitting this. Republicans themselves, have made it clear that they know what's at stake. In fact, when Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina was asked what will happen if the GOP fails to deliver on their promise to cut their billionaire donor's taxes, Rebecca Sovransky of The Hill reports, quote, Graham specifically said that financial contributions will stop for the GOP. And, of course, he also talked about how incumbent Republicans might actually be primaried in 2018 if they don't come through and deliver on their promise to give massive tax breaks to their largest donors. Which probably means that their donors said, look, if you can't get this done, if you don't pass tax reform and give us tax breaks and give us this huge return on our investment, the investment being the contributions they provided to Republicans uh, for their political campaigns, then they're basically saying, we're going to find someone who will. We will primary you and get someone in office who will actually deliver on these tax cuts that we want and we paid for. So, I mean, this is this is corruption. This is legalized bribery. Of course, this is no longer a criminalized practice in this country because we have campaign finance laws that allow for this type of open corruption. But, I mean, nonetheless, it's still corruption regardless if it's legal or illegal. Now, Bernie also says here that this bill will run up the deficit and the Republican Party will then propose cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security to reduce the deficit. And this is such an important point because... The Republican Party, they've done this before where, where they create problems and then they propose solutions to said problems that disproportionately fucks over the middle class. So in cutting taxes to the tune of trillions of dollars for the richest Americans in this country, you can't do that without finding a way to fund it unless you don't care about bankrupting this country and really running up the deficit. So, of course, this is what they're going to do. They're going to propose cuts to Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security in order to pay for tax cuts to their billionaire donors. And look, this is no longer just speculation. Mitch McConnell, literally, we covered this last week, he admitted that we can no longer, you know, guarantee that um, <laughs> we won't be raising taxes on the middle class. Now, I want to show you another clip from this interview where Bernie Sanders responds to another argument that Republicans often cite to justify tax breaks to the richest 1% of Americans. So Republicans' response to the idea that 50% is going to the top 1% is the top 1% pays 
uh, disproportionate amount of taxes. I, I do want to better understand your objection to, the, to the, this aspect of the bill. Is it the size of the tax cut going to the wealthy that bothers you or the idea that the wealthy are getting any tax cut at all? Well, first of all, what the Republicans are forgetting about is, yeah, the rich pay more in taxes because we have massive income and wealth inequality in America. 52% of all new income in America is going to the top 1%. Duh. Yeah, the rich are going to be paying more in taxes. But does anybody watching this program really believe that the major crisis facing our country, when the middle class is shrinking, when our infrastructure is falling apart, when young people can't afford to go to college or are leaving school deeply in debt, when 28 million people have no health insurance, does anyone really think that the major crisis facing this country is the need to give hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks to the very richest people in this country? Nobody, nobody thinks that. And what's really mind-boggling to me is that Republicans... Anytime they do something to screw over the American people, which is 99.9% .9 of the legislation that they push, they almost always try to veil it and lie to us and get us to think that, you know, um, what they're doing really will help us out in the end. But in this instance, I mean, they're not really trying to hide the fact that they are pushing for tax reform vociferously, specifically at the behest of their donors. I mean, you have the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, admitting that repealing the estate tax specifically would help rich people the most. You also see Trump's National Economic Director and the former president of Goldman Sachs, mind you, Gary Cohn, admitting that CEOs are actually the most excited about the Republican tax plan. Hmm, I wonder why that's the case. It's because this tax plan is just a huge gift to the Republican Party's donors, since they've been delivering and contributing to the campaigns of Republican politicians over the course of years and years and years. Now they're saying, finally, look, now that you're in office, now that you control all branches of government, it's time that we get a return on all this money we've been pouring into your campaigns. Now, in this interview, I'm going to show you one last clip where Bernie Sanders responds to another misconception about tax reform that is being pushed by the Republican Party. The centerpiece of this tax bill is a significant reduction in the corporate tax rate. Is it not true that lowering corporate tax rates uh, would encourage more companies to set up shop here in the United States and discourage them from no, doing, it's doing it? It's not true. No, it's not true in this sense. First of all, the Republicans are not telling the truth about the effective corporate tax rate. Nominally, it is 35%. Effectively, it's somewhere around 14 or 15%. Second of all, what they are trying to do is pass what is called a territorial uh, tax uh, program, which will, in fact, lower taxes for corporations that invest abroad. In fact, a very serious argument can be made that their legislation will result in the exodus of jobs from the United States, companies going abroad, paying lower taxes there. Our job right now is to end the absurdity of one out of five major profitable corporations in America today, today, not paying a nickel in federal taxes, their legislation would make it worse. And by the way, Jake, what they are also doing is making permanent, making permanent the corporate tax breaks, making temporary the tax breaks that benefit working families and the middle class. Absolutely crazy. So to me, I think that's probably the most important thing that can be said about tax reform. Even though the nominal 
corporate tax rate is at 35%. Well, that doesn't really matter because they're not paying 35%. These large multinational corporations, they take advantage of loopholes and they exploit our convoluted tax system. They take advantage of tax havens. And there's a reason why a lot of companies are actually paying zero dollars in taxes. And that's because our tax system does not hurt large multinational corporations. It has been watered down over decades and decades to benefit them. Now, companies that get away with paying zero dollars effectively includes American Airlines, GM, HP, Ventas, PG&E, Xerox, and News Corp, among others. So, I mean, if our corporate tax was effectively the highest in the world, not nominally, but effectively, then we wouldn't see all of these companies be able to so easily skirt paying any taxes whatsoever. Now, Jake Tapper also asked Bernie Sanders if it was true that cutting the corporate tax would encourage investment, would encourage these companies to invest in the United States. Now, we heard what Bernie Sanders said, but you don't even have to hear what Bernie Sanders has to say in order to determine that this is a bullshit claim, because when you actually ask CEOs themselves whether or not they'll use this extra revenue that they'll be getting from large tax cuts to invest in the United States, they say, not really. Can I ask you all a quick question? If the tax reform bill goes through, do you plan to increase investment, uh, uh, your company's investment, capital investment, just a show of hands, the tax reform goes through? Okay. Why, why, why aren't the other hands up? <laughs> why aren't Maybe, the other hands up? John, I've got a, a question quick for, for, for Gary quickly. Seriously, why aren't the other hands up? Can't you guys see that I'm trying to push for tax reform here by lying to the American people and you're not helping me out? I mean, <laughs> this, this is exactly what we see. And that was, that was the most embarrassing moment, I think, probably in Gary Cohn's career. Because here he is pushing this lie relentlessly. And all these CEOs, they admit, yeah, we're probably just going to pocket that money. And, you know, um, we're not going to invest back into the economy like you keep saying we will. So, I mean... We have to be clear, this is about reforming the tax code, not to make it simpler, not to make it less convoluted, but to allow large multinational corporations, billionaires and billionaires, to get a huge gift, a return on their investment for contributing to the campaigns of Republican politicians for decades. That's what this is about. This is not a bill that is centered around helping the middle class. They claim that doubling the standard deduction will be great for the middle class, and in theory, that's true. But the middle class is still going to suffer if you pay for these tax cuts by cutting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. So this is an egregious bill that has to be defeated, but it passed the House, it cleared the Senate Finance Committee, and it may very well pass the Senate. And if that happens, then you can guarantee that President Trump will be signing this into law. But we all need to know and realize what this is about. This is not about tax reform. This is about giving their donors a gift, plain and simple. And it's time that the Republican Party's own voters realize what their party is actually doing. It's pretty transparent. To no one's surprise, the Keystone XL pipeline leaked 210,000 gallons of oil. And just days after this happened, public officials in Nebraska voted to approve construction of the same pipeline that just leaked in their state. So they saw the massive oil spill and they said, sign me up for that. Now, this was a decision that was made by Nebraska's Public Service Commission and if you feel inclined to protest 
after they voted to approve construction of a pipeline that is leaking. Uh, first of all, your, your heart is in the right place, but unfortunately, what they're trying to do to prevent protests might be more of a scandal than them approving of this pipeline in the first place. So according to Aileen Brown of The Intercept, she reports Nebraska's Public Service Commission approved the Keystone XL pipeline Monday, eliminating a major regulatory hurdle to construction of a project that galvanized people across the United States into opposition. The decision comes days after the existing Keystone pipeline, to which the KXL will connect, spilled an estimated 210,000 gallons of oil onto agricultural land in South Dakota. To many pipeline opponents, motivated by the inevitability of a spill, the contaminated land proves their point. Meanwhile, organizers are preparing to stand in the way of construction. A coalition, including several tribes, native-led organizations, and environmental nonprofits, released a call to action, asking people to sign up to commit to creative, peaceful resistance along the pipeline route when construction begins on KXL, likely next spring. The statement asserts that anyone traveling to resist must undergo a training and remain peaceful. Last month, 84 members of Congress, including four Democrats from Texas, signed a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions asking whether domestic terrorism laws could be used to prosecute individuals shutting down oil pipelines. In response to queries about the letter, the Department of Justice told Reuters earlier this month that it would aggressively prosecute anyone who damages critical energy infrastructure in violation of federal law. In anticipation of the Keystone XL's construction, legislation was passed in South Dakota in March that allows the governor or a local sheriff to prohibit groups numbering more than 20 from gathering on public land or in schools, and also allows the Department of Transportation to limit access to highways by prohibiting stopping or parking in designated areas. Now let me remind you that we supposedly live in a democracy. But if you protest the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, 84 lawmakers are going to try to prosecute you as a terrorist. These are the same types of tactics that we saw Egypt use during the Arab Spring. They tried to prohibit people from protesting by saying, well, if you, if you gather in groups of 10 people or more, then that's illegal. And that's what they're doing here. They're saying if we see people in groups of 20 or more, then uh, we have the authority to prosecute you as if you were committing terrorism. Now, what act of terror are these people committing? The definition of terrorism is violence as a means of promoting a political cause or violence for political aims. But they're not committing any acts of violence whatsoever. They're peaceful. And this was the same thing with the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters at Standing Rock. They were peaceful, and yet they were shot with tear gas, rubber bullets. They were shot with cold water and freezing cold weather. There were literally armed mercenaries that were hired, and they were using counter-terrorism tactics against these peaceful protesters. They were attacked by guard dogs of armed mercenaries. This is the resistance that we see, not just from private companies, but our own elected officials. If we stand up and we say, we don't support what you're doing, we don't support the construction of these pipelines that will inevitably leak and could potentially damage the environment and kill wildlife. I mean, to, to say that we're going to do something anyway, 
that's undemocratic. But to say that we're going to punish people who protest what we're doing when we violate the will of the people, that's just authoritarianism. There's no way to frame it any other way. This is authoritarianism. We are seeing democracy slip from our hands here. I don't see how stories like this aren't national scandals. The United States, not just a democratic country, but the beacon of democracy across the world, this is what we claim, right? We're using authoritarian tactics, counter-terrorist tactics against pipeline protesters. And again, they approved this pipeline, the construction of this pipeline in their state after it spilled more than 200,000 gallons of oil. We no longer live in a democracy. And this isn't just me being hyperbolic and saying that. This is based on the data. A Princeton University study published in 2014 by Dr. Gillens and Page actually found that normal citizens have a statistically non-significant impact on policy outcomes, whereas the elites and special interests, i.e. multinational corporations and private interests, they have all the say on policy outcomes. So if you don't want something to happen, if you don't want your public officials to uh, side with corporations who destroy the planet because they want to make profits, too bad. Unless you have enough money to buy politicians yourself, they're not going to listen to you. And this corruption is rampant. It's not just at the national level, but as we see, it's at the local level as well. Because how else could you vote to approve a pipeline? After it just spilled, unless you're corrupt. This is a national scandal. I don't see how this isn't talked about in the mainstream media all the time. So the DNC, particularly Chairman Tom Perez, they've had <laughs> a really difficult couple of months, to say the least. You know, the year started off with him being elected to this new position that he probably didn't want, but was pushed into by the party's elites. As DNC chair, they've had terrible fundraising months, and then he got a lot of pushback when he decided to purge progressives from the DNC, and then it was revealed that Hillary Clinton bought the nomination. She took over the DNC in 2015, long before she became her party's nominee. So the DNC, I mean, this is a PR nightmare that is irreparable. You can't fix this image that has been just decimated because the DNC's corruption, it's systemic. It's so far-reaching that there's no way to really ever earn back that trust that they lost unless they replace everyone. I mean, just cleanse the DNC from top to bottom of all these corrupt individuals that continue to drive the party off the cliff. But, in spite of all that bad news, it just got a little bit worse, again, for the DNC, because they reported that in October, they had their worst October fundraising month since 2003. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric Bradner of CNN reports, the Democratic National Committee's fundraising woes continued last month, when the party posted its lowest total for the month of October in at least 15 years. The DNC raised $3.9 million in October, far short of $9.2 million raised during the month by the Republican National Committee. The RNC has now raised $113.2 million over the 2017 calendar year and has $42.5 million in the bank and no debt. The DNC, meanwhile, has 
raised $55 million this year. It has $5 million cash on hand and owes $3.2 million in debts. It was the worst October for Democrats dating back to 2003, the year the national parties were required to file monthly finance reports. The low totals reflect the difficulty the DNC has had raising money since former President Barack Obama left office. And it's not just because Barack Obama left office. The reason why the DNC is having trouble raising money is because they have no legitimacy. What little trust they had... They betrayed in 2015 and 2016 when they decided to rig the primaries against Bernie Sanders. So how do you expect to raise money from progressives if nobody trusts you? I mean, there's no way to really cultivate that trust back. Now, the article suggests here that part of the reason why their fundraising is lower than usual is because they formed JFAs, joint fundraising agreements with states, so the money is going more you know, towards state parties. But I mean, for a national party organization, this is still... Horrific. It's a PR nightmare, and it doesn't bode well for their prospects in 2018, but thankfully what we're really seeing is a shift to people donating not to the DNC, but instead to candidates that they like, or to organizations like Justice Democrats and Our Revolution that support candidates that we like. So that is important. That's really important because we're taking power away from the DNC, and we're saying we have the power. We're putting that money in candidates that we like, and we're not allowing the DNC to control who gets money and who doesn't. Because when you allow the DNC to make decisions on behalf of the party, well, when progressives like James Thompson runs, what do they do? They just ignore that race. I mean, look at Lee Carter. They ignored him, a Democratic Socialist. They ignore progressive campaigns. They don't come out to support progressives. But when it comes to milquetoast neoliberal Democrats, people like John Ossoff, that's who they support. But they... They don't ever support progressives, and if they do, their support is tepid at best. So, here's the thing. The DNC, I really don't see how their fundraising can improve, but I mean, as the DNC chairman, your number one job is fundraising. You've got to raise money for the party, and Tom Perez is not doing that. So, the question now becomes, well, when are you going to step down? We already saw inklings of pressure from DNC insiders and Democratic Party members basically saying, look, you're not, you're not doing a very good job. You've got to step down. And we want him to step down. We want the party to put pressure on Tom Perez to resign, which they haven't really done yet collectively. But we want that to happen because then his deputy DNC chairman, Keith Ellison, will presumably take over to be the new DNC chair. Now, make no mistake about it. Is Keith Ellison perfect? Absolutely not. There are so many flaws about him, but Keith Ellison is exponentially better than Tom Perez. He is worlds better than Tom Perez, and he actually genuinely is trying to do good. Now, I think that he lacks a spine in a lot of ways, and he doesn't speak out enough. Um, and he stood behind Tom Perez in spite of all the controversies and the progressive purge. But look, he's still better than Tom Perez. And that's important because if we have someone that's even a little bit better, like Keith Ellison, well, in 2020, we have more assurance that the DNC won't do what they did in 2016 and rig the primary against Bernie Sanders. So look, this DNC fundraising, you know, um, issue, the, the fundraising woes, as the article puts it, that they're experiencing, this is a self-inflicted wound. You can't expect to raise money from people after you defrauded them. I mean, people donated money to the DNC, and that's because you said that you were running a fair, impartial, neutral primary, but it turns out you took their money and lied to them. So how are you going to expect people to trust you when you defrauded them? You can't.
That's why they're losing. Progressives are very generous. You saw that the average contribution to Bernie Sanders' campaign was $27. So the DNC, they don't know what they did in screwing over progressives. They basically shut themselves out of access to a progressive piggy bank that would have been willing to donate to this organization in order to defeat Republicans. But, you know, they decided that they wanted to be corrupt and defraud progressives instead. And now look, you reap what you sow. This is this is what the DNC deserves. They deserve all these fundraising woes because they're a corrupt organization. That corruption is systemic and rampant. So um, I, I'm loving all of this. So a few weeks ago on the show, we talked about a petulant multi-million dollar donor to the Democratic Party named Stephen Klubeck. Now he threatened to cut off their funds and actually leave the party if they even thought about moving to the left and embracing left-wing populism. This is what he said specifically on MSNBC. I can't stand the rich. A lot of people want to be rich. So is it the right message that the Democrats are going with? It's so effing wrong. Whoa. I've talked to Schumer. I've talked to Wyden. I've talked to Pelosi. And said what? And I said, if you use the term billion again, I'm done. Why? Because... It's aspirational. Then are you worried that the Democratic Party is going too far to the left? So much so, it drives me nuts. So much so, it would make me quit the party. And I've made it very clear, I'll cut your money off. And others will do the same. We've had enough. So when you tell the Democratic leadership this, when you meet with Wyden and Pelosi and Schumer, what do they say to you? Well, so far, they've given me great signals that they're willing to participate and get there. Now, since that interview went viral among the progressive community, he learned the hard way that that threat, it doesn't really mean much to progressives. In fact, a lot of us said, if you want to leave the party, bye. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on your way out. Because uh, what you're doing is you're keeping the party corrupt. You are keeping the Democratic Party beholden to rich people like you. And to get all that money that you're offering them, they are ignoring what we want. So Stephen Klubeck learned that nobody really cared about his threat. Real liberals actually want him to leave the party. And in an article for Salon, Connor Lynch actually expressed that same sentiment, saying big donors threaten to bolt from Democrats. And that's a good thing. Mega donor Stephen Klubeck says he'll quit if Dems don't back away from Sanders' worn populism. Let him go. Now, in this particular article, Lynch included a quote from an op-ed written by Bernie Sanders for Politico. He writes, around the same time that Klubeck was professing outrage at the word billionaire as if it were an ethnic slur used against a persecuted minority, America's most prominent critic of the billionaire class was offering very different advice to the Democratic Party. Quote, the party cannot remain an institution largely dominated by the wealthy and inside-the-beltway consultants, wrote Senator Bernie Sanders in a column for Politico magazine, in which he argued that the party must open its doors and welcome into its ranks millions of working people and young people who desperately want to be involved in determining the future of our nation. Now, the assessments from both Connor and Bernie here are spot on, and most normal, ordinary Americans who read that would agree. However, one individual read this article and didn't agree. That person, of course, is Stephen Klubeck. So he tweeted out the article, and he then said this to Bernie Sanders. 
Senator, are you that stupid to say what you said in this article? We are the party of aspiration. Everyone should be able to make as much as they want, not discourage that, embrace it. If they don't, then we will help them with a living wage. Well, is he not merciful? <laughs> we don't get tuition-free public colleges and universities. We don't get single-payer health care. We don't get nationwide legalized marijuana, but he's at least allowing us a living wage. Well, actually, you don't dictate what policies the Democratic Party is fighting for anymore. We're going to take over that fucking party, and your ass is going to be kicked to the curb, Stephen. Now, first of all, before I get any further, I can't not point out that his comment to Bernie Sanders just received five likes. Not even kidding. So, needless to say, not very many people like what Stephen Klubeck is saying, and to call the most popular politician in the country stupid, I mean, who does this guy think he is? Now, look, he says that we're the party of um, opportunity and aspiration, and everyone should be able to make as much as we want, and look, in theory, sure, I'm okay with that sentiment. However, that's not what happens in practice. You rich assholes make as much as you want, but what you do is you shift that tax burden away from yourselves and onto us, and then that limits us from making as much as we want. We have to pick up that tax burden when you greedy pigs don't pay for your taxes. You get everything. You get to buy politicians. You get to call politicians. You have access to them that we don't have. Meanwhile, you're threatening to leave the party if they don't continue to exclusively do your bidding. But what we're saying, Stephen, is not that we want to round up all the millionaires and lock them in jail. All we're saying is that maybe it's our turn to get a tax cut. Maybe it's our turn to have our tax dollars invested back into us and not into the military industrial complex and not to pay for tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires. That's all we're saying. It's not controversial to us. It's only controversial to you because if your taxes go up, then you might have to decide between an extra private jet and another mansion, and not be able to buy them both. Your greed, the greed of your class, has killed the middle class. We don't even have a middle class. The American dream is dead, and as George Collins stated, you have to be asleep to believe it, because it doesn't exist. There is no American dream anymore, because you guys raided the piggy bank that is the U.S. government. You bought off politicians, you got them to do all your bidding for you, and now all we're saying is, hey, it's our turn. It's time that Government looks out for us, but you've got a problem with that because you're greedy. You can't even fathom the Democratic Party moving further to the left, and you incorrectly claim that they're already moving to the left when they're not. The party has moved further and further to the right. They have. That's just a fact. Since Clinton, he shifted the party to the right. The Clintons basically ruined the party. Now, this was in response to the Reagan revolution because he came and said, you know what? We don't need a new deal. We need deregulation. We need tax cuts for the rich. And then that got a lot of people excited. So liberalism, it wasn't as popular back then. So the Democrats responded by moving to the right to compete with the increasing popularity of Reagan Republicans. And that shift to the right didn't stop. They're still moving further and further to the right to where we see Democrats, progressives like Elizabeth Warren, voting to authorize $700 billion military spending bills. So to say that the Democratic Party is moving to the left 
is absurd. I wish it were true, but it's not. It's just, it's factually incorrect. Uh, you're not going to find a single political scientist that will tell you that the party is shifting to the left. Everyone knows that they're shifting to the right. You just have a skewed perception of reality because you live in your elitist bubble. So look, here's the thing. Steven Klubeck is a complete joke, and I am really glad that he's showing his true colors because it's it's good to have this insight into what oligarchs think about us peasants. Really, they look down on us. It's clear when you look at Steven Klubeck's tweets. He thinks that we're dumb. He called Namiki Konst Darlin, literally, uh, when he was being condescending to her. They really, they don't think highly of us. They think that we are inferior to them. But look, having money doesn't make you better than us, Steven. It just doesn't. That's a fact. And even if you may be rich, we all have something that you don't have, Stephen, and that is a fully developed neck. We all have that. You don't have that. So um, your money can't buy you that, Stephen, so continue to be jealous, but I'll sit here and I will stretch out my neck because I have one. <laughs> I'll end it there. <laughs> this, one, this went off the rails. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in. If you watch the show every single week and you made it this far in the episode, thank you so much. And as usual, I have to send a huge thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. You guys are crucial to this show's survival. Um, and you don't know how much I appreciate your generosity. Thank you all so much. So I will see you all next week. I hope you have a phenomenal holiday week. I would say I hope you enjoyed the show, but I know you probably didn't because this was just a really <laughs> a really shitty news cycle um, or a shitty news week to talk about. So hopefully you found it informative at the very least. <laughs> I'll see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>